This morning we've come to a really, really important place in John's gospel. Now I know I say that like every week, right? Because there's so many life-changing truths in this book, but today I'm really serious. <laughs> this is a really, really important place. We're, by the way, if you're joining us for the first time you're visiting, yeah, we've been in John for a couple years. We're enjoying going slowly through it. And we are now halfway through chapter 14. And now... On four separate occasions over the next two chapters, John is going to relay to us how Jesus has promised to send the Holy Spirit to be with his disciples. Four times between chapters 14 and 16, four separate times, he will talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And because of how we've set the context over recent weeks, you can understand why he wants to do that in this moment. These are some of the final words that Jesus is going to say to his his friends before he is arrested and taken away. So he is going to keep coming back to this theme about the Spirit over and over again in order to stress just how important it is that as he goes away, another like him will come to provide the disciples with the comfort that they need, with the guidance that they need in this desperate hour as they're about ready to lose their master. So a quick pro tip, whenever you hear somebody reference this section of the Bible... John 14 to 16, the first connection you should make in your mind is Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit. It really is a critical moment in the gospel record. So as we jump into uh, a little bit more teaching on who the Holy Spirit is, let me ask you a question. Don't answer out loud, but what do you think your level is in terms of your understanding of the Holy Spirit? Grade yourself. What is your level of understanding of the Holy Spirit? Think about that. Do you feel like you have a good handle on, on who the Spirit is and what his role is within the Trinity? Do you have a good understanding of how he operates in your life as a believer? These are important questions. And I found over my years in ministry that there are many, many Christians who just aren't sure of these things. So today we're going to begin to dive into what we call pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So-called because the Greek word for spirit is pneuma. Very good, pneumatology. And because we're going to talk about the spirit multiple times over the next couple of chapters, today we're just, we're just going to take a little nibble at pneumatology, just a little bit. We're going to look at just two verses today, just two verses, and we're going to try to extract some important truths about the glorious person, third person of our Trinitarian God. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 14. It's going to take a little bite today, but there's some really great stuff in just these two verses. Now, we ended last Sunday at verse 14, and today we're looking at 16 and 17, which means for now I'm skipping over verse 15. Audible gasp in the room, right? Um, trust me, we're going to get to that next week because actually what, yeah, what's said in verse 15 is going to get repeated just a few verses later. We're going to cover it, trust me. Today we're going to look at just verses 16 and 17. Somebody's going to report me to the elder team for this, right? <laughs> All right. Now, up to this point in John's gospel, have we seen the Holy Spirit talked about? The answer is yes, but I wouldn't say that he's been prominently featured in John's gospel. We saw him back in chapter 1 when John the Baptist gave testimony to the Spirit's presence at the baptism of Jesus. Then we, looked, we, we heard about him in chapter 3 when Jesus sat down to talk with Nicodemus. And then in chapter 6, 
Jesus told the people in Capernaum in a sort of mysterious way that it's the Spirit of God that gives life. And that's really been it up until this moment in the upper room. And now the Spirit is going to become a huge focus of these last hours before Jesus is arrested. So let's back up to verse 11 now. We'll read in context. You'll recognize some of these verses from last Sunday. And then we'll get to our our passage for today. Verse 11. Believe me, Jesus says, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you missed last Sunday's message, we talked about some of the difficulties of of this passage. Go back and listen to it on our YouTube page or on our website. Then verse 15, which we will come back to, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, last Sunday, we talked about how future generations of disciples would do greater works than Jesus did during his time on the earth. And we marveled at that, right? But we we saw how Jesus wasn't talking about the miracles and that no human being has ever done greater miracles or more spectacular miracles than Jesus. The greater works that he's talking about here are related to the breadth and the scope of the spread of the gospel, which we talked about last week. We'll go from literally from from Israel and Syria all the way to Rome within a 25-year period. And not just, not just dozens of people getting saved, but many thousands getting saved during those 25 years. So that's the greater works that Jesus is talking about. Now, what we're about to read in verses 16 and 17 is the key to these greater works. It's the Holy Spirit that becomes the, the key to these greater works. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. That's actually, those two verses are really packed, aren't they? With a lot of really important uh, theology. So let me just start by saying pneumatology, in my opinion, is one of the most difficult categories of systematic theology. Maybe, maybe second only to eschatology in terms of its difficulty. So I'm not surprised, and you shouldn't be disappointed in yourself if you haven't sort of navigated through all the little nuances that come with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Back when TMU had a, a degree program uh, here on campus, night classes where adults could, could come back to, to campus and get their, their college degrees, They hired me as one of their instructors. And over about eight years, I had a chance to teach almost every category of systematic theology. And I will tell you, in no class did I have more questions than when I talked about pneumatology. I mean, I couldn't even get through the material without a hand shooting up. Questions, questions, questions about pneumatology. It's actually very, very difficult. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. One of them is sort of self-inflicted by today's church, because as we talk about the Holy Spirit, where do we always tend to veer off towards? Towards debates and controversies about the spiritual gifts and whether they're active today and all this nonsense. And in that debate, I'm not saying it's not a worthwhile debate, I'm just saying we sometimes miss the forest for the trees because we're not really focused on the person of the Holy Spirit. So, by the way, Jesus doesn't talk about that subject in the upper room. So we're not going there. Now, I know, it's so disappointing, right? We want to hear about the gifts and all that stuff. Jesus, Jesus did not stop and go, guys, let me share with you about all the spiritual gifts and how this is going to work out. 
Maybe someday, if we do a topical series or we do it on the underground or we get to 1 Corinthians, we'll, we'll walk through that, but not in this particular study. What makes pneumatology so challenging is the fact that the biblical data that we have for God the Spirit is less concrete and a bit more murky than the data that we have for God the Father and God the Son. First, there's not as much data to work with, and I, I hate to use that word data because it sounds clinical, but when we're doing systematic theology, you're collecting and collating data so that you can systematically lay out who these, these persons are. But there's not as much data to work with, and the data we do have is somewhat veiled by the language, which just makes the Spirit come off as more mysterious to us than the other two persons of the Godhead. There's also this interesting uh, uh, trend, which is both historical and theological. There's always been a logical order when we talk about teaching about the Trinity or even understanding the Trinity. And that is the idea of Father and then Son and then Spirit. The first person of the Trinity, the second person, and the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Godhead. It's just a logical order. And we heard in the Athanasian Creed that Grant read so well, you guys read so well this morning, uh, that the three persons are ontologically equal to each other in both substance and nature, so let's make sure we say that. In fact, it said, neither, all three are neither made nor created. They are co-equal in glory and co-eternal in majesty. Thus, as the Creed was written, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they're not three gods, but only one, Correct? So we know that that's true, ontological equality, and yet there is this idea of a natural progression from father to son to spirit. The, the son being begotten of the father, and if you want to know what that means, come see me later or send me an email, and the spirit, even more controversially, proceeding from both the father and the son. So we let pneumatology fall into its place after we establish who God the father is and after we establish the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And you think about the dispensations that we see in the Bible and how the truth about the nature and substance of God unfolds over time. Think about how it unfolds over time, progressively unfolds as God reveals more about himself to his people. I'll give you just a couple things here. First of all, before the incarnation of Christ in the Old Testament, the great test of true belief in Yahweh was his oneness, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. We call that monotheism, right? And that was the very foundation of who God is. It's what set the Israelites apart from all the other pagan nations around them, that they believed in the one true God. That was the true test of belief. Then when Christ came and took on flesh, there was a shift in belief. Now the true test of belief, get this now, was whether a monotheistic people would recognize and receive Jesus in whom the fullness of deity dwells. And, and imagine how hard that would have been for a Jew in that time, right? Because monotheism is the, is the root and the basis of Judaism. But now you had monotheism plus Jesus is fully God. Then after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, the Spirit is sent into the hearts of, of believers, of people who are both monotheists and who trust in Jesus as as fully God, and now the true test of belief becomes, do you recognize the fullness of God in his Trinitarian form, the three in one? Does that make sense? There's been this progression, right? This progression of understanding and belief as God has revealed more of himself to his people over time. 
And by the way, this is exactly the same path that the early church took as they were trying to, to figure out how to define God and how to define Jesus and define the Holy Spirit in, in creeds and confessions. That's why I asked Grant to read from that creed today because that's so important in church history. Take another important creed. In fact, the most important creed from the early church, the Nicene Creed of 325, the bishops who attended that council very godly men, took the same path here. They started, in fact, they took great pains before anything else to establish that God is one, that monotheism is at the root of both Judaism and Christianity. Then they went on to describe the nature and substance of Jesus and how he relates to the Father. That's very, very important. And then guess what? At the end of the Nicene Creed, only briefly do they mention the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you look at the original text of the Nicene Creed, the Holy Spirit's almost an afterthought. Oh yeah, and the Holy Spirit, we believe in him too. But the focus of the early church, even in 325, was on monotheism and how God the Son relates to God the Father. It would take the church 56 more years to, to, to fully lay it out. In 381, at the Council of Constantinople, they added to the Nicene Creed this very firm and beautiful confession about the full divinity of the Holy Spirit. And put together, most churches will read those two confessions together now, put together, they are the foundation of the early church's teaching on the Trinitarian nature of God. So we see it in the dispensations of the Bible, we see it in church history, and now we even see it unfolding in John's gospel. Here we are, 14 chapters into studying John, and who's been the focus the entire way? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. John started with Jesus in the very first verse, right? In the beginning was the Word. And then he related the Son to the Father by writing, and the Word was with God. Even John is following this pattern. In the following chapters, we've seen one proof after another that Jesus is fully God and that he is utterly and perfectly one with the Father. Right? Have we not seen that over and over again? This oneness between God the Father and God the Son. So we have those two things in John's Gospel. Monotheism and Jesus is God the Son. And now, finally, here in chapter 14, the Holy Spirit comes into view and the, full, the fullness of the Trinitarian nature of God comes into view in John's Gospel. That the Holy Spirit is also God. Now, having laid out that logical order, it's really important that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We cannot bifurcate the Old Testament and the New Testament and give the wrong impression that God has somehow evolved or changed over time. He has not. Okay, The God of the Bible has always been Trinitarian in nature. It's just a matter of revelation over time. The Holy Spirit has always been present, always been active among the persons of the Trinity. In fact, going all the way back to the time of creation, right? The Holy Spirit is mentioned in the second verse of the entire Bible. In Genesis 1-2, the Spirit is said to be moving over the surface of the waters even at a time when the earth was formless and void, the Spirit was there. Then we see the Spirit operating among God's people in the Old Testament, in the nation of Israel. In particular, what the Spirit was doing was, I should catch up on my clicks here, here we go, empowering specific servants of God to fulfill the calling that that God had given them to lead and guide the people. So Israel's kings, for example, were anointed with the Spirit at various times to fulfill their calling. Israel's prophets were filled with the Spirit at times to interpret dreams and visions and to be able to stand before the people and say, thus saith the Lord. 
And finally, the Spirit also enabled some Israelite craftsmen at time to use their unique skills, such as those who were commissioned to help build the tabernacle. So the Spirit's involved in all of that. But what we don't see in the Old Testament is the Spirit filling or indwelling believers permanently. We don't see a permanent indwelling in the Old Testament saints. The language in the Hebrew Scripture seems to indicate that in general, the Spirit of God was with the people and among the people and temporarily filling certain servants at specific times, but not permanently indwelling Old Testament saints. Does that make sense? So operating in a different way during this particular period. And if you think about this, this actually makes perfect sense. In the Old Testament period, worship was very different than it was today. God was, in a sense, localized for the sake of his people. His glory and his presence was right there, first of all, in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple in Jerusalem, right? So worshipers before Christ were able to seek out God to worship him in his house. So there wasn't the need for that permanent indwelling because the people could seek him out in the tabernacle or the temple. But of course, all that changes when God the Son comes on the scene. Remember how Jesus told his disciples that the temple was destined to perish. He said, not one stone will be left upon another. And soon his gathered people, what we call his body, right, the church, would become a holy temple built up in him. And then once the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, as prophesied in the Old Testament, believers would each become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, right? He said, do you not know that you, individual believer, you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So things have been shifting, right? God hasn't changed, but the revelation of who he is and how we worship him has changed from Old Testament to New. In the current age, God's covenant presence is now in us, not in a building made with human hands and not in any particular location, but in us. Make sense? These are important distinctions to make. Now, let's look at a third important role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and this one may surprise you. Although we don't see a permanent indwelling of the Spirit in the Old Testament era, it's important to affirm that he has always been the agent of regeneration of the heart. The Spirit has always been involved in regeneration. Yes, Old Testament saints were, in our New Testament language, saved by faith alone. That's the only way God has ever saved anybody is by faith alone. The Bible tells us, for example, that Abraham believed God. Right? He believed in who God was, believed in his promises, and it says that belief was credited. What a great word, right? Credited to Abraham as righteousness. He was cleansed by that faith alone. That's an amazing thing. That is salvation by faith alone in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. But here's the thing. Theologically, we know there is no seeing and believing apart from God doing a work in man's heart because we're we're sinful. God has to do that work first. And that was just as true in the Old Testament as it is today in the New. So we affirm that the Old Testament saints became believers and were sanctified as faithful worshipers by the same regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, which under the law, the language sort of changes. It's not necessarily you know, being born from above. It's circumcision of the heart is the language that we see under the law. 
By the way, one of the reasons that we know that this is true of Old Testament saints is the story we read in John 3 when Jesus has that sit down with Nicodemus. Recall how Jesus said to him. Now remember, Nicodemus is a man of the old covenant, right? At this time, he's a man under the law. And Jesus still says to him, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, and by the way, the word for wind in Hebrew, ruach, is the same word for spirit. So there's a parallel in language being done here. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. And he says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, God the Spirit moves as he wishes. God the Spirit saves whom he will save. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, seriously, how can these things be? And what does Jesus do? He rebukes him. He says, are you not the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? The point is, Jesus indicates that Nicodemus should have known that the Spirit of God has to be involved in transforming the heart before anybody can enter the kingdom of God. That was true in the Old Testament, just as it's true today in the New. Make sense? So regeneration of the heart. So you see three key things that the Holy Spirit was involved in during the Old Testament period. Now, in addition to these things, there were, there were two key roles prophesied about the Holy Spirit during the Old Testament era that would come to fulfillment in the new. Let me give you these as well. First of all, it was prophesied that there would be the presence and power of the Spirit would come upon the Messiah, who at this point was to come into the future, right? Here's what we read in Isaiah 11 about the Messiah. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? King David's father. And a, not, not, not that, Jesse. <laughs> and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, listen, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Wow, the Messiah needs the Spirit of the Lord? While he's in the flesh, yeah. He goes on, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And this is one of the things we don't often consider when we read through the Gospels and we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus on earth. The Holy Spirit was his constant companion. The Holy Spirit was his intimate companion, right? Carrying him along. Think about this. Even the conception of his human body in the womb of Mary was done by the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus in power. It's through the Spirit that he resists the temptations of the devil in the wilderness. He engages in public ministry and does miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's by the Spirit that Jesus consistently speaks the word of the Father. The two are operating together even while Jesus is in the flesh. And so the prophecy of Isaiah came to fruition during the time that Christ was on the earth. During the incarnation, the Spirit of God rested on the earthly Jesus the entire way, in every way. In fact, Jesus and the Spirit are so inseparable that later when Paul and Peter sit down to write about the Holy Spirit, they often refer to the Spirit as what? The Spirit of Christ. The two are so inseparable. So the Holy Spirit is prophesied in the Old Testament that when the new comes, he will have a specific ministry to the Messiah. And then secondly, the second role is in the coming new covenant. And we see this repeatedly in the Old Testament, both in the law and in the prophets. 
The promise is given to Israel that the law would be written on the hearts of God's people. Be written on the hearts of God's people under a new covenant. I will put my law within them, God said through Jeremiah, and I will write it on their hearts. And in Ezekiel, we read about how this is going to happen, and guess how? By the Spirit. Ezekiel says, And I, the Lord, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my judgments. That's what the spirit does. Causes us to walk in the commands of God. So to summarize before we dive back into John 14, there is a natural progression of understanding the nature of God from father to son to spirit. But at the same time, we see the Holy Spirit constantly present and active from creation all the way through the new covenant. Make sense? Okay, good. With that foundation lay, that's again, that's just a nibble on pneumatology. We'll come back to more of that as we move along. Let's go back to John 14 and those two verses. And I want to point out to you five key truths that we see just in those two verses. The first four I'm going to move through pretty quickly. And the last one about indwelling we'll spend a little more time on. Everybody there? John 14. Look at verse 16. This is the first truth. First truth. I'll put them up on the screen as well. I will ask the Father and he will give you what? Another helper. Underline that phrase. Another helper. So this person who's going to be given to the disciples is called a very specific word, a helper. A very specific title. Only John uses this particular word. He uses it in his gospel and once in his first epistle. In the Greek, the word is parakletos. And in English, we just say paraclete because we're just English speakers and that sounds much easier, right? Paraclete, right? And the word literally means to call alongside. But in secular Greek, we find it used of of a particular um, type of person who is a legal advocate. That's the best way to understand it, a legal advocate. Now, in those days... They didn't run trials like we do today. There wasn't a a prosecutor and a defense attorney. Trials in that day was basically a judge who would sit and and, and there'd be a parade of witnesses who would come in and they would give testimony and the judge would try to figure out what's going on here. And in that context, a paraclete was somebody who could show up on your behalf as the accused and provide testimony to the judge that might vindicate you. So you wanted to have a really good paraclete who would come in to get you off, right? So if Almighty God is your judge and eternity is at stake, you want to have the right paraclete to provide testimony on your behalf. That's the picture that's being drawn here. What's interesting is is that Jesus calls the Spirit a paraclete here in the upper room, but later John in his first epistle calls Jesus a paraclete. You've heard this verse. 1 John 2, 1 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So both Jesus and the Spirit are called a paraclete or an advocate. And that helps us understand why Jesus uses this language here. He says, I'm going to send you another helper. What that implies is, is that Jesus sees himself as an advocate, as a helper, right? A legal advocate for sinners before the judge. And now he says, I'm going to ask the Father, this is so important, he's going to send you another advocate just like me. 
Another advocate just like me. In fact, he uses the Greek word for another here, alos, which refers to another of the same kind. Another of the same kind. This is an obvious Trinitarian implication. Jesus is saying that this one that's coming, this spirit, is of the same kind as I am. The same type, the same nature, the same substance. Basically, Jesus is saying, look, friends, this person who's going to be sent to you is going to be a helper for you in the same way that I've been your helper for the past three years as we've walked together. In the same way. So remember, back to, what he, back to the whole purpose of this. So do not let your heart be troubled, he says. The Father and I will be with you through this helper who is just like us. Can't stress that enough. That's the promise that Jesus is leaving in this desperate hour. No, I know that I'm being physically taken away, but the Father and I will be with you through this helper who is coming. He is just like us. He is of the same kind as we are. And soon, once Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, that spirit is going to be poured out, and he is going to take over the very work that Jesus did physically amongst his disciples. As I said earlier, it's the coming of this helper that's going to make that greater work listed in verse 12 possible. And that's why Jesus says, you're going to do these greater works because I go to the Father. It's better for you that I leave because this helper is going to cause you to do greater works. The gospel is going to spread all over the Mediterranean world. What an amazing plan. What an, nobody would draw this up like this, right? If we were like, how do I draw this up? None of us would do this. The wisdom of God is so far beyond us, but God has an amazing plan in this. So just stepping back, this statement, this another helper, is just, just one of many examples of Trinitarian language that you will find sort of woven into the New Testament all over the place. Jesus didn't stop to say, guys, I have a lecture for you about the Trinity. He just, this stuff just gets woven throughout the New Testament scriptures. All he's trying to do is speak about the persons of the Trinity, how they interact, how they work for the good of God's people, and for the furtherance of his sovereign plan. Does that make sense? Good. Second thing. Here we go. Look at, uh, continuing in verse 16. Second key truth here. That he may be with you forever. Jesus promises the disciples that not only is this helper going to be given to them, he will not be withdrawn. That is good news. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Remember, remember David said that? Jesus says, not only are you going to get this person, this helper, he will not be withdrawn from me. He will be an abiding presence with you forever. And imagine, given the circumstances of this moment, you know, when, when the, the, the 11 must be feeling a sense of abandonment. Jesus says, I'm leaving. You can't follow. They're feeling abandoned. But imagine the comfort they get when Jesus says, this helper will be with you forever. What a huge encouragement to their hearts. Third key truth. Look at verse 17. He's called the spirit of truth. The father will give you another helper that is the spirit of truth. So this is obviously a hint at what's to come, that this paraclete will, will, will be a spirit of truth for the disciples. Remember, just 11 verses earlier, Jesus has said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, right? And now this helper is going to come and testify to that very same thing, the truth about the Father, the truth about the Son, the truth about the one way, the only way to salvation. He is the spirit of truth. Fourth key, continuing in verse 17. Whom the world cannot receive 
because it does not see him or know him. Because the world operates on a purely materialistic you know, way, basis, Jesus points out this obvious fact. Anyone who rejects God, who rejects Christ, will not and cannot perceive, understand, or know the Holy Spirit. Cannot be done. But Grant read from Romans 8 earlier, right? But we're of a different kind, right? We don't trust in things that are seen, right? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what true faith is. So we're so different from the world in that sense. That's the fourth key truth. The world can't receive him, but we can. Final key truth, and this is where I'm going to spend a little bit of time. Finishing verse 17. But you, disciples, you know him. The world doesn't know him, but you do. Why? Because he abides with you and will be in you. Those are key, key words to make sure that you, you, you see. Because he now abides with you and will be, future tense, in you. So Jesus is revealing to his disciples that not only has the Spirit of God been his constant companion over these years, but the Spirit has also been present and active among this entire group of disciples and with each individual, all 11. He says, you know him. He's been abiding with you this whole time. Right? Again, sort of that Old Testament picture. The Spirit of God with and among God's people. But then he makes clear that soon the Spirit, there's going to be something completely different, right? A different way that you will know him. But this has to take place only after I'm gone. Only after my death and resurrection and ascension. And of course, what we're talking about here is what we, we read in Acts 2, right? At Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and this permanent indwelling in all believers, Here's the big difference with the Old Testament. Not just a temporary filling, but a permanent filling. And not just certain servants that God marks out, like need to fill him right now, but all believers, everyone who trusts in Christ will get this indwelling of the Spirit. And this is where I want to finish today with this idea of indwelling. What does that mean? What does it mean to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes in, 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 the, in the church, we just... We just say things because we've heard them so many times, but we don't ever go, you know, I should stop and think about that. Like metaphysically, what does it mean that the Spirit indwells me? It's an interesting question. Here's the thing. You can find indwelling language all over the New Testament. It's everywhere. In fact, we just read in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. What does that mean? Now, I know we covered this before, but just as a reminder, this is perichoresis, right? This is the Greek term for this. In English, what we call coherence, the, the mutual indwelling of the Trinitarian persons. Each of the three persons shares or coheres in the divine nature and in each other. That means the whole of God is in each of them, right? And therefore, the three persons also mutually contain one another. I know this is mind-blowing stuff, right? But, but that's basically what's being described. The point is you cannot see God without seeing all three persons. You cannot have one person of the Trinity without having the other two. And you cannot have any person of the Trinity without having the fullness of God. It's crazy, right? It's wild. Here, here's, here's how Augustine described this in one short sentence. And this is a great quote. Augustine said, Each are in each, and all in each, and each in all, and all are one. Should I tweet that out or something? Or 
put that in the Tuesday tidbits for next week. I mean, again, Grant, Grant, your intro, there you are, your intro this morning was so important to talk about the, the, the men that have gone before us theologically to establish these truths. We take them for granted today, but the early church was battling for these truths and trying to wrestle with all the data in scripture. So when somebody like Augustine is able to look, who's really the most brilliant man in the first couple hundreds of the church, is able to sit there and say, yeah, this is what this means, this mutual indwelling. We should take note. And yet, so we've got this coherence, and yet we also affirm that there are distinctions between the three persons, right? The Father's not the Son. The Father's not the Spirit, and the Son's not the Father, and the Son's not the Spirit, and the Spirit is neither the Father or the Son. They are distinct. So we have indwelling language used to the Godhead, but here's the thing that should just blow your mind here. We also have indwelling language between human beings and God. Think about that. Indwelling language between human beings and God. 164 times in the New Testament, believers are said to be in Christ. Again, that's a phrase we often use without thinking about it, but imagine that. He in us, we in him, and now we read in this today's passage that another person of the Godhead will be in us. What does it mean? Are we talking about being physically located in another person? Is the Holy Spirit physically located within you? Obviously not. (laughs) Obviously not. First, we know that the Holy Spirit is not a material or physical being. So we really can't even ascribe physical qualities to him. In fact, he even asked the question, where is the Holy Spirit, is to confuse categories completely. Asking spatial questions about a spirit being is like asking what the color blue tastes like. It just doesn't make any sense, right? It's a a misuse of categories. So when we speak of the spirit's presence, we speak of who and what, but we don't really speak of where. So when 1 Corinthians 6.19 says the Holy Spirit is in you, the picture that's being drawn is of a very personal and very intimate relationship. Hear me on this. A relationship where God is working within the inner man of a believer, within our being, actually directly operating upon our hearts. That's what's being described here. A direct work upon the heart, upon the inner man for believers. That's what's happening. Leading us into truth, transforming our desires, convicting us of sin. As we read in Romans 8 earlier, interceding for us in prayer, producing spiritual fruit in us, and so much more. That happens because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's not physical. It's the new covenant presence of God in our hearts, working redemptively to conform us to the image of Christ. That's what's going on here. And as we submit to him and yield to the work that he wants to do and cooperate with it, yeah, God the Spirit acts directly upon our hearts to change us. This is, this is how we experience change in the Christian life. It's what slowly and subtly grows us and matures us over time as we walk by faith in these pilgrim days that we have on the earth. It's the indwelling of the Spirit that makes all the difference because he's actively working upon our hearts. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Now, I want you to think about this as we wrap up. What does this mean for your life? In the big picture, what does it mean that the Spirit indwells you and is doing this work in your heart? Guys, I want to tell you, it's it's beyond what you can even fathom. 
And again, sometimes we just get so, we take it for granted, we get so jaded to it, we don't really think about what's going on. But listen, as children of Almighty God, as members of God's family, we're being invited to take part in this ongoing love relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. We're invited in as his family. Right? That mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity is open to us, God in us, Christ in us, the Holy Spirit in us, and we in God. We become temples of the Spirit brought into this mystery of divine love. We're not only called to believe it, but we're called to participate in the relationships of the Trinity. That is amazing. Can you imagine how blessed we are? How blessed we are, but I'm gonna ask the question, honestly, how many of us live in light of those truths? Day to day, how many of us live in light of that truth? This indwelling presence of God. I mean, we're living in this, really the climactic age of redemptive history. We're living in this new covenant age, the age of Christ's church, the days of the indwelling spirit of God. There's never been a better time to be alive than right now. We live in a time where we can step back. We can see, as we talked about this progression of God revealing himself, we see it all. Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. How favored we are to live in these days. And yet, how often do we as Christians even consider it? Even think of it? Our goal should not be just to learn facts about the Holy Spirit, but to grow in our intimate knowledge of him, to grow in our love and enjoyment of the Trinitarian persons. The goal should be to be awakened to his presence within our hearts, to tap into the power that he has to transform our lives and then to extend that to others around us, especially in this local church. These are extraordinary things, friends. And this is, we're only scratching the surface today. There is so much more to learn. But let me come back to those original questions. Do you feel like you have a, a handle on who the Spirit is? On what his role in the Trinity is? Do you understand how he is present right now? How he is active and operative right now in your life as a believer? If not, we have a lot to learn and there's so much more to come in the next few months. Will you come back? Okay, let's bow our heads. Lord, how beautiful it is that you have revealed yourself to your people, beginning with Israel so long ago. And then, Lord, to take on flesh, that God the Son would show us who God the Father is in every way. And then, Lord, to even as he is taken away and the temple is destroyed, to, to send the Spirit to be within us, to indwell us, Lord, to act upon our hearts. Lord, that you would take it upon yourself to transform us. How blessed we are, Lord. I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters that we would not take that for granted, that, that each day we would wake up renewed by your great love for us and excited to enter into this transforming process by the Spirit. And Lord, even as we sing now, I pray, God, that we will commune with you, the three persons of the Trinity, that we will worship you as you are worthy of being worshiped. Help us to do that now, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.